Geopolitics and Empire is joined by journalist and lecturer Matthew Errett. He is the founder of the Canadian Patriot Review and writes for the Strategic Culture Foundation, an excellent website that is banned completely from some social media. You cannot even post their links to Twitter and Facebook. Oh, welcome to the podcast for the first time, Matthew. How are you doing so far in 2021? Thank you for having me on. And uh, indeed, these are the times that try men's souls, as Thomas Paine once said. Eh? Yeah, indeed. And that's what makes uh, it kind of, well, it's depressing, but at the same time, <laughs> exciting. Uh, and so I, I wanted to start by talking about something that you've been writing about for years. And this has also been, for me, one of my primary uh, research focuses uh, personally. I've been collecting books on this subject and reading about it for decades now. And that topic is global governance, which is a euphemism for world government or global government or even world state. Uh, there's a few books in my background. I know you have a big library, but I've got books scattered in boxes all across the planet. Uh, but I you know just, just to show, you know, when we talk about this subject, it's it's not crazy. It's all documented, uh, you know, well over uh, a century. You know, I've got books from, you know, 1942 talking about post-war worlds. Mm -hmm. I know you write a lot about, you know, here's H.G. Wells' um, Open Conspiracy, where he talks all about this stuff. You know, the idea of world uh, government, um, just more, you know, uniting of nations at the top. It says world government. So, you know, here they talk about ruling the world, uh, an international constitution to rule the, the world end of the nation state, right? And the formation of these regional kind of unions yeah. uh, from, from European Union to World Union. Yeah. Uh, and even, you know, uh, the late great Dr. Robert Pastor, I think I had the last interview with him before he passed away in January 2014. I interviewed him in December of 2013, the North American idea or North American Union. So, um, you know, for me, this is the big enchilada uh, I find that all other events that we often discuss are in the service of attempting to bring about uh, world government, whether it's the threat of nuclear war, so-called global warming, so-called international terrorism, and now so-called domestic extremism or terrorism, global financial crisis, so-called global pandemics. And, you know, most of these problems I'm, are manufactured or, or, you know, prolonged by the same elites whose central goal is centralized control uh, of the planet. Uh, so you've written many articles on this sub subject. There are many tangents one can go off on. There are many individuals, organizations, uh, everything from Cecil Rhodes and the round, round table group, CFR, think tanks, foundations like Rockefeller, Carnegie, um, and their projects like the EU and Euro. So as yeah. best as you can, you know, pulling together all of your knowledge and insight, could you give us kind of a concise or succinct tour through and summary of uh, the striving for world government as you've followed it over the years. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And there are so many entry points to discuss this. Um, so I'm trying to think to myself as I was listening to you speak, what would be the most useful way of evaluating this topic for the uh, minds of your audience? And I think that um, a paradox is a good place. And there's a paradox that recently arose um, with Vladimir Putin's January 2020 um, speech where he first uh, called for a new security architecture founded a, and also a new system. He actually called for a new system on January 15th in a state of the union uh, in Russia uh, founded upon the UN principles and the UN charter. Um, and he said, we need to reestablish and reinforce the world security, uh, the, the UN security council. And we need the UN charter to be a governing uh, driver of how 
a world system of politics should be organized. This was repeated by Xi Jinping uh, even more recently yesterday in his, his speech at Davos. He recently said, you know, we need um, a system with the UN charter enshrined. And uh, a lot of attacks occurred because a lot of people who like generally the, the multipolar alliance, they like the, the, um, the idea of win-win cooperation of the Russia-China uh, uh, partnership, which has really, really taken off, especially since 2015 when the Eurasian Economic Union uh, had their integration treaty, the first of several, with the Belt and Road Initiative. So a lot of people who are who sensed that this is an alternative to the unipolar system of the West, of the transatlantic, they were a bit confused because they're like, oh, wait, are these crypto globalists? This whole time, was I rooting for Xi Jinping and Putin, but they're actually crypto globalists who are fooling me? And this whole thing is a charade. Maybe the, the U.S. military is not actually engaged in a full, in a full spectrum dominance uh, encirclement of Russia and China's perimeter. Maybe that's not true. Um, and, and I had a lot of people, a lot of writers, uh, a lot of readers uh, write into me. But I think when you actually go um, to the U.N. Charter and to really look at the original founding documents and look at the battles that were being had at the end of World War II from 1943, especially till 1945, you can start appreciating that it's not so simple to say um, all world, all discussion of, of world government per se is all equal. It's not equal and it's not all the same. Um, when you look at the UN Charter, one of the things that's very clear is that it's premised around the, the respect for the sovereignty of nation states. It's not like the League of Nations. The League of Nations was something which was designed in its fabric, in its constitution in, after World War I to supersede uh, nation states, to render them impotent and null and void by, by basically giving the rights to uh, controlling economic as well as military responsibilities to an unelected bureaucracy of specialists who would be operating through the Bank of International Settlements that was brought online by 1930. But then earlier on, the Bank of England was the sort of controlling financial mechanism. Um, and the League of Nations was supposed to be the one world government. So the, the UN originally, under the idea of people like um, Henry Wallace, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, Wendell Wilkie, many of the other um, American statesmen of that time, of the 1940s, they were anti-imperial. They all they they consciously enshrined the respect for sovereignty of nations in in the charter, uh, the idea of cooperation uh, in order to solve international problems of an economic, social, cultural, or humanitarian character, and 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 promoting and encouraging the respect for human rights. Um, that was designed to be the center for the harmonizing of the actions of nations and the attainment of these common ends. So it's it's a very different idea of cooperation and and the, what. Roosevelt wanted to do was to take the 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 war on the the on Wall Street, the war on these great reset um, bankers of London who wanted to have their great reset in 1933 under the London Conference. He he basically sabotaged all of that, and he reinstated the he reinstated the American Constitution as he brought bankers from Wall Street to prison in front of he brought them in front of trial during the Pecor Commission, and he then created state credit through the, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation after re after regulating the banks and breaking up the, the too big to fail banks of Wall Street that created the Great Depression. So he did all of these things, uh, which was always a political fight. It was never easy. It was always up against the most powerful fascist sponsoring um, financiers of the world. And he wanted to take that example and then make it available for every nation that had been colonized by the British Empire, which had been formerly the only one world government on the world for hundreds of years. 
it was really people before the 19th century. I mean, everyone understood that the, the real enemy, it wasn't communism versus capitalism. It was empire versus nation state. And people recognized that the American Revolution, what it what gave it the, the power was that it was a new type of society governed around the idea of the consent of the governed, the inalienable rights of every individual. That is what gave authority to this to the laws of the nation. Um, that that was never done before 1776. So the economic policies that arose out of the American experience, um, which was really driven by Benjamin Franklin, some of his his proteges like Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, they created an economic system premised around um, the rights of of every sovereign nation to have a national bank productive credit, protective tariffs to favor its local development of its industry so that they could stand on their own two feet economically and not be reliant on some power, powerful leviathan like the city of London always was uh, as the, the mother that would then give them some crumbs if need be. Um, <clears throat> so this was better understood back then. Today, it's been really scrubbed out of our history books and people don't know how to think about that fight. But this is what Franklin Roosevelt and his allies tapped into when they configured, when they configured the UN. Now, immediately, he died early in, in April 12th, 1945. All of his allies either died early, like Harry Hopkins, um, Her uh, Jesus, uh, uh, Wendell Wilkie died early. Um, Wallace was, you know, destroyed politically. It was called a commune. A lot of them were all expunged and purged from U.S. intelligence. The OSS was disbanded. And essentially, all of the Churchill... Um, you know, the deep state department sort of took over control at that moment and started converting all of these Bretton Woods institutions that had originally been designed to be instruments for providing long-term development aid for nations to industrialize and stand on their own two feet in Africa, South America, and beyond. That was what the good neighbor policy was all about. That was all abandoned. And these things were increasingly turned, as we saw, into instruments for economic terrorism and subversion of national development throughout the 1950s, 60s, 70s to today. So today we're, we're at a place where you have sort of the, re, the realization that the system that we've, the, the security architecture, the financial architecture that has been sort of guiding the world, especially since the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, is coming to an end, that it's a big bubble. It's a chimera. Um, we're going to see a, a meltdown of the financial system. And it's just been kept, they've been kicking the can down the, the line a little bit by just printing more money to bail out a little bit more. But it's, it's completely unsustainable, and that's why the great, the great Reset Agenda was brought online recently, summer last year, from the World Economic Forum. And this is, this is you can't really understand what COVID-19 as a psychological operation is really about if you don't have that sense of how both of these things were coordinated from the top in order to keep people at homes, keep social movements relatively diffused and confused so that as the system is being reset, they're able to stay in the driver's seat. The, the same oligarchs that created this problem decades ago are able to sort of keep in the, in the driver's seat. The Russia-China alliance, the 159 or no, 139 nations or so that are signed on to the Belt and Road Initiative, we can see very clearly by their, their policies, by their um, the program that they're committed to for long-term development, large-scale infrastructure, it, multipolarity, the, the respect for sovereignty of nations. This is really... The, 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 the revival of the original founding spirit of the United Nations as it was intended to be and not as it became an increasing sort of tool to subvert nation states. So it's two different worlds, two different systems. We're going to have obviously a world, we can't, we're 8 billion, 9 billion people soon. We're not going to be able to live in a world where everybody's ignoring their neighbor. 
So you're going to have to have some form of way to moderate your relationships with the family of other nations and people. But is it going to be one that's based upon an operating system that forces people to conform their behavior to the will of an unelected bureaucracy of technocrats at the top, right? Or is it going to be one that actually respects the right for everybody to have their own developmental pathways, which is much more in harmony with what we see out of the Belt and Road Initiative and the Russia-China alliance more broadly? Now, I had a question then, because um, I've been thinking about this and I've had guests on, uh, you know, we, we wonder where is this, you know, geographically, the, the driving force and, you know, there's a line, there's a Rubicon we can't go beyond, right? Like, who, who are these globalists? I like when Catherine Austin Fitz said, uh, Mr. Global, right? You know, we, we've, we've, we can identify some of their front people, you know, Bilderbergers, Trilateral Commission, uh, like you said, Wall Street, City of London, um, you know, Saudi lobby, uh, Israeli lobby, and all these people. Uh, but it keeps coming up time and time again, you know, the British Empire or the remnants of the British Empire. So who would you say, at least in the in the West, where's the seat uh, of this driving force for this, you know, Western New World Order? Is it still uh, the British Empire or the, the remnants of yeah, the British I'm, Empire? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, it is in, in so many ways. But the, but the reason why people have a difficult time with this is because the British Empire isn't what they thought it was. They have a certain cartoonish idea that they've been given from media, from their popular history books of what the British Empire was as a bunch of, you know, stuffy red shirt wearing, red coat wearing, uh, you know, militarists out, you know, suppressing India with their military power and the sun never sets. You know, you got these ah, sort of romantic ideas of what this thing was. And that's not, it's not at all like that. Um, the empire itself was always one, an empire of the mind. It was an empire of intelligence agencies, British intelligence going back to the days of, uh, of Lord Shelburne, after that, Lord Palmerston. I mean, you, 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 you have um, a certain tradition of recognizing how to utilize um, a, prof a, a technique of profiling your victims, how to, how to manipulate Byzantine intrigue. There's a certain science and set of tactics that are passed down um, from one generation to another to maintain a continuity of system. You have also a banking empire. I mean, part of this thing has been through, especially in the last 350 so years, uh, the city of London has been the center, the nerve center uh, of the world financial architecture. Um, that didn't change. That's still the case today. It's not this. This is this didn't disappear somehow after World War II, when apparently, as the myth was was given to us, the American Empire arose to replace. The British Empire, which became, you know, this, it, it, it agreed to just dissolve its former kingdoms and, and uh, let the, uh, the strong, young, young up and coming republic become the new empire. No, that, that's, that was a mythology cooked up by the enemies of the republic. Um, but it, it's, it's been a banking empire. It was an empire of, a, of um, penetration of organized corruption in every nation it would operate through. So to be able to create, let's say for the, for the sake of India, here's a, a good paradox is, you know, they were, how was the British empire with only, what was it? Maybe 20,000 at max uh, soldiers able to subvert for generations, the entire Indian society, which had what had 300 million or so more people, even um, it was once the, the most powerful economy um, it, up until the 18th century, along with China. How was such a small number of, of, of British soldiers able to suppress that, that, that quantity of people, that powerful tradition, thousands of year old culture? And it was through understanding how to, how to profile the weaknesses of that, 
the cultural matrix and amplify, let's say, for example, the caste system so that they were able to create an organized structure of the Brahmins that they favored that would then self-organize um, that society and self-control that society. And then on the other hand, subvert that society's capacity to develop their own manufacturing. So they used to be leaders in textiles. That was all subverted through the opium wars uh, with China, that whole period. And the Indian textiles were consciously destroyed through free trade as Britain took control in London of, of the production centers of textiles, leaving India to produce pretty much opium, which was very good, good for the British because they then sent that to, to China to keep the Chinese dragon sort of at bay and, and weakened spiritually. That was, it was calculated. And in so doing, they created triads, you know, because who would do the work in China? So they had the creation of sort of, you know, Chinese secret societies, triads were formed that would, would be self-organized syndicates that would be then obedient and, and take directions from their British masters. We have the same thing inside of the United States with the formation of the KKK under Albert Pike, right? Who was also the guy who reorganized the Grandmaster Freemason, who reorganized Scottish Rite Freemasonry after the Civil War. Uh, he set up the KKK as a domestic terrorist group under the service of Mazzini and Palmerston in London. Why did he do that? It was to stop reconstruction, right? To spread uh, just an architecture of chaos and fear to, to break the Lincoln-Ulysses S. Grant program for real full reconstruction after the Civil War. Um, this is what was revived later on under Wil Woodrow Wilson and McKinley. Uh, not McKinley. After McKinley died, you had Woodrow Wilson and uh, Theodore Roosevelt who revived this. So I think it, it's important to see the empire of the mind of banking of uh, and, and, and to see it as something that's direct directly continuous as a process when you look at some of these inner families that tend to intermarry at the top you know they could come and go some of them do stay there for a long time and the point is the it's an artificial system that set that that's ethically premised around the idea that your right to rule is is based upon your blood this goes back to ancient times we've seen this philosophy that you know you're if you're born into the right family that's what gives you the right to rule. If you're born into the wrong family, that's what gives you the right to be a slave. Um, Aristotle lays it out in his ethics, his Nicomachean ethics, right? That there's one set of moralities for the slave and one set of moralities for the master. And that's how society should be organized. Um, Plato disagreed with that. Plato, the guy who came before that was always, no, look, look at the, you know, look at a slave child in the Mino dialogue would, would be able if taught correctly, even though that slave child did not have access to the, the elite education, they were able to be more creative and more intelligent by doubling the, the surface area of a square, just purely through their own powers of thought, even more so than the, the slave master Mino himself, that slave boy was able to make that discovery that the slave master couldn't do. So the slave master was intellectually inferior and spiritually inferior in power, even though he might've known more stuff than, the, than, his, than that boy was in that dialogue. So um, what you've got is something which, goes back to the days of ancient Babylon, ancient Rome. And if you can only understand this thing when you start looking at the, these transition moments and these battles. So when did Greece become submissive, become an empire, right? What was, what was Socrates battling against when they, when they, when they killed him through the democratic party, right? They, the, that's what brought him to trial and forced him to drink the hemlock as a crime for corrupting the minds of the youth and undermining the, the uh, doctrines of the state. Um, it, it was at the moment when he was resisting just by simply asking questions and getting people to utilize their powers of mind. Um, the, the core um, assumptions and, and truths of the experts, the sophists who wanted to manage the society through the art of eloquent speech without any concern for truth. 
Um, and this is what that society was turning into under Pericles. We saw what, what Greece was turning into, right? It had backstabbed its, its allies. It had basically started uh, treating its allies formally as now colonies. And, um, and it was a real slide into deep corruption that resulted in that society not coming back from it. Uh, same thing for, for Rome, right? When, when Cicero took a stand to try to preserve the Roman Republic um, and Mark Anthony ultimately cut off his head. What was Cicero doing? He was reviving the Socratic principles. All of his, his dialogues are written as dialogues, as platonic dialogues. And he saw himself as a continuing 250 years later, the tradition of Plato and the Academy. Um, and when he was killed, just like when Socrates was killed, that was sort of the shifting for the Roman Republic to become now the empire. And a lot of the same families that were running things like the cults of Delphi in Greece, the Apollo at Delphi, that was tied very closely to a lot of the cults uh, that ran the banking, the financial uh, structures as well of Persia, of Babylon. These, these sort of just migrated using the same techniques of, you know, forming controlled, acceptable ideological uh, cages that people could be a part of. You know, you could worship whatever cult you wanted, but it couldn't. They had a problem when Christianity arose and all of a sudden there was an idea that, no, maybe there's actually one God. Maybe there's one morality. Maybe there's not one morality for the master and one for the slave. Maybe there's like one higher universal truth that we all must submit to. And that, that was incompatible with the pagan system of the empire. So they've migrated and you could sort of map out in some way, not, it's not always directly. We don't always have smoking guns all the way, but if you have your idea of history as a continuity of oneness, then, and you can focus on these transition moments, what was Augustine doing? During the collapse of the Roman Roman Empire, what was Saint Augustine actually doing by reviving the Platonic method in his in his confessions and in all of his dialogues? He's writing as again, it's a very Platonic system of of communication and of teaching, um, and he's always organizing against this this imperial thing all the way up through the migration of the ruling families after the Rome Rome collapses into um, Venice and the lagoons of Venice, where they sort of set up shop for another thousand years where Venice was, and I just wrote an article today, or I published it on my Substack, on uh, the League of Cambrai, of 50, the, the 1508 League of Cambrai and the, and the BRI today, how not to repeat history. And it really gets you across that finally, you know, at a certain moment, Venice was, was known as the world center of, of finance just before the British Empire, it was Venice. And, uh, and it was run by these families. They had organized themselves into committees of, of 2,000, organized by a committee of 10, organized by a committee of three, with a doge and they, they, they had control of global maritime traffic, global bullion trade. Everybody had to go to Venice. Venice was funding all sides of the wars when Christian, when Protestantism was, was uh, sort of manufactured to break up, uh, you know, Christianity because there was a battle happening within the, within the church of all sorts of different factions with different views of the, the nature of man. Um, a lot of wars proceeded for hundreds of years and these these bankers were funding all sides happily laughing as their their victims who had everything to gain by working together which they did in 1508 where the, all of the victims of venice finally worked together for a period of a couple of years and they they actually went to war and destroyed the venetian navy and just before they were going to go in with the the death sort of on like the, the sledgehammer right before they could do that Venice was able to orchestrate a series of back-channel um, amazing evil sabotages where they were able to get all of these allies to start killing each other. And all of a sudden, Venice, if you look after 1512, they're just the ally of everybody again. It's like, 
that gives you so much in, insight into how they were able to subvert these great potentials that arose again and again in, in historic time. And it also gives you an insight into what to be careful for today when we have, again, a convergence of different nations and cultures of the world who are realizing that, you know, we have a lot of reasons to fight each other over land, territory, history, baggage, but we also have common enemies that have been fueling those fires artificially. And you actually have, through the Belt and Road Initiative, such a wonderful conjunction of different cultures um, showcasing that the 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 uh, clash of civilizations doctrine is not the law of nations, you know, of Samuel P. Huntington, but it could be sabotaged. And, and we've seen that as well with the United States. There's been a lot of weaknesses that the U.S. has shown, shown um, since especially the, the death of JFK, but also with the ouster of Trump. Um, we've seen that there, there, there was a bit of soul searching for the four years that Trump was the president um, to, to rediscover what was really good about itself that it had forgotten when, when Bobby Kennedy was killed. And we didn't really have much resistance or goodness coming out of the USA for a long time. And then all of a sudden we had like this, these two Americas showcase the, a clash amongst themselves, right? So people, at least they've, they've, they've had that rekindled and that's good, but only one of those Americas is compatible with being a partner, a trustworthy partner with the Belt and Road, with China and Russia. The, the other America that we've seen now assert itself under uh, the, the, the takeover again by the, um, whatever, whatever this thing is controlling Biden, it's not compatible. It's uh, it, you need to get a completely different way of thinking about policy, ethics, government. It, it's it's totally a different universe that they're living in. And yeah, this kind of brings us then, as you mentioned before, the the great reset, the whole project COVID, uh, great uh, reset. And as you've kind of outlined, for those of us that understand this history, that understand world governments, uh, the actors, their aims, um. And what we've seen now with COVID, how what you detail this British uh, infrastructure, global infrastructure, where you know they, they have they use the intelligence agencies, this this uh, psychological operations, the the financial uh, yeah. centers, and we've seen this with the great with the COVID, where most nations of the world they've been able to you know like lock them down through this. Um, infrastructure and so and we're at this kind of transition transition point so we're moving from this british american kind of system now that's you know full, filled with debt that's about to collapse to something else now and you know are, are we approaching you know definitively finally their attempt at true true global government and you know so what's your take on what's happening with this uh great reset and, and covid and and going forward you know well you know yeah, I mean, it's <clears throat> it's important to keep in mind that the empire themselves, um, they it's it's premised around a certain um, ivory tower view of how human nature must be because we demand it to be so. Every time that the these oligarchs, um, and you could trace this out, every time that they ever end up achieving the type of utopic uh, system that they've been striving for when they've done their assassinations, when they've orchestrated enough artificial wars and when they've subverted their enemies enough and they achieve that type of structure of power of consolidation that they desire, whether it was in the case of the Roman empire or whether it was in the case of Venice, we find that the same outcome is that it, it's only able to parasitically destroy the, the host that it sort of latches onto. Um, now, every, every good parasite knows you don't kill your host. Um, that's not good for the parasite. 
they don't know how to do anything but destroy the foundations for their own existence. And they might think that it would be better when, if we were to have like sort of a modern day dark age and have a collapse of population to something more controlled. Now that might look good on paper if you're an imperialist, you know, but to actually make that happen, especially with the additional factor of nuclear warheads all over the earth, um, it's really a video game. It's, it's, they think like it's a board game. The actual world that they live in is much messier and much more hostile to their own existence if that type of thing comes forth. Um, I think that what we have, obviously, with the Great Reset is an attempt to go, like, flight forward. They're, they're doubling down. They've been patient in a certain way for many decades, uh, just sort of setting. It's kind of like the Fabian Society motto, you know, I, 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 with, the, with the turtle, you know, I, I don't... Str- takes me a long time to strike, but when I do strike, I strike hard. Uh, <laughs> and uh, a little funny, that, that statement. Uh, their, other, their other symbol for the Fabian Society is a, is a wolf in sheep's clothing, mm-hmm. uh, which is the more famous one. Uh, now they're doubling down. They're not, they're not going backwards, but they're also facing the reality that the scripts that they had been using for the last decades, especially with the, the assassinations of, of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, that script is not working so well anymore and especially it started breaking down after Gaddafi was assassinated you know when they wanted 9-11 they got 9-11 when they wanted the Iraq war they got the Iraq war they wanted the Patriot Act they got that too they got pretty pretty much everybody was the population was induced to just go along with whatever the will of the oligarchy wanted and up until Gaddafi's murder that was the case there was not a lot of resistance against that there was some back back channel maneuvering happening you know, Russia and China got together. They created the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. They created the G, what became the G20. Um, there was like a survivors club of Eurasia that had sort of formed, um, but it wasn't still a serious force of resistance. That wasn't that wasn't it. And then after Gaddafi, the target was set on on Syria, and things stopped working. All of a sudden, China and Russia began utilizing their veto in the UN Security Council. That started creating these blocks. And uh, even though Ukraine kind of went down with the way they wanted, not really, you know, Russia was still able to keep control of Crimea um, or, you know, I mean, the world became, they, they never wanted the world to see how neo-Nazis were deployed and sponsored by the West. That was never supposed to be something that became publicly available as knowledge. Um, And, and it became more of a messy thing. And then um, everything with the Belt and Road Initiative, since that was announced by 2013, Everything that we've seen that evolve for the past seven years, eight years almost, um, has been off script. So we've got these two competing systems. Now, the empire cannot blow out their current system in the West while that other system, that alternative financial architecture, is alive and thriving. They have to destroy that somehow. Um, That's where I get a little bit of hope. I get a lot of hope, actually, because when I, if I just look at the United States by itself right now, I honestly don't know what pathway it's it's very new territory it's very bad territory there's not a lot inside of the u.s currently um that i see as being very hopeful currently but again i i because i take a top-down uh evaluation first i am very hopeful in that sense because you do have so many nations of the world all uniting around a viable alternative and they're all saying no to depopulation no to one world government um, they're paying lip service in some ways to the whole COVID thing coming out of the Great Reset, but paying lip service and actually passing through policies that are depopulation are two very different things. So I'm not seeing um, um, 
any of these nations giving up those rights for sovereign development pathways for open system versus closed system economics. The what we do know is that the 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 imperial crowd running the Great Reset, because you know, they, I mean, I, your audience knows this, but just to recap, you know, they're trying to say, okay, we need to take the whole fight against global warming to decarbonize the world by 2050, supposedly in order to bring down world climate by a degree or two degrees or something, uh, which is actually just not science. Not only is it not scientific, um, if you do the things that the Green New Dealers in the Great Reset crowd are actually saying you should do, um, you will destroy society's ability to sustain, forget seven or eight billion people, you could barely sustain two, one or two billion people by going for that quality of windmills and solar panels everywhere. That quality of energy is incompetently bad um, on so many levels. You just can't, you can't harness the quality of, 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 of heat required for a capital intensive industrial civilization, which is what you need if you're going to have this quantity of people at a certain quality of life, you have to have a, a, a certain ability to deploy and, and direct vast amounts of quality heat and energy, not just for your house, but really for industrial needs too. That won't be there. Um, it only kind of works under this idea of a, of a consumer society that's not productive forever at a highly reduced number. So anyway, they're trying to combine that with the COVID response. And uh, we know that we know that um, China has offered their system as an open system. They've offered every country of Africa, South America, North America, Europe, an ability to participate and jump on board with that new operating system that is not run by the World Bank, the IMF, the World Health Organization and other things. It's a different architecture. So it's an open it's open. And I think as things get worse and people realize that this fire is not a dream, it's it's touching their skin. If that's where the survival instincts from people who are currently sort of sleepwalking or docile are going to increasingly kick in. We've already seen examples of that, but it hasn't been durable. Um, and when you look at what the options are, either like hell on earth under a depopulation world government great reset or a, a world of development, science, technology, space exploration that's coming out of the Russia-China alliance. I think people are going to organically as a matter of just being human beings with children, you know, like we're, 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 we're creatures that are, that are wired for self-preservation. If we're not ideologically cultish, like some of these, uh, Malthusian technocrats are unfortunately, but for the most part, the natural human instincts that we're born with, uh, imply to me that you will get more positive receptivity to nations jumping on board that, that future oriented system rather than sticking with the Titanic. Yeah, yeah, and you know it's interesting. I think recently, as a result of COVID, you know, out, up in Canada where where you are, they created like twelve concentration camps, these de COVID detention camps. So if things start to get really bad, you know, in the West, are, are you are you going to then head out to to to, to Eurasia? Well, at the very least, <laughs> who knows, man? I I gotta say, you gotta keep your options on the table, but. Um, yeah, no, it's it's certainly, you know, there's one of the funny, the, the sad things with the, the QAnon phenomenon, and I don't want to speak too much about this, but one of the problems was that uh, it, it's obviously a, a PSYOP cover, and, and so many people who write to me, who read my stuff, they're obviously very, they want to believe, you know, in the QAnon sort of promises, um, but a big one that I kept on getting was people saying, oh yeah, all of these FEMA camps, all of these detention centers, it's great. You might seem scary at first, but it's actually really good because this is actually the Q guys, the good deep, the good deep state who's setting all of this up to prepare for putting in Hillary Clinton and all of these bad guys. That's for it's like, no, guys, guys, it's for you. Like, <laughs> really think about this. 
yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that was I'll celebrate uh, this, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a total counterintelligence uh, operation. The whole QAnon line and to set, set honeypot set up, you know, to create a pretext for this dom domestic terrorism. Now, uh, you know, I, that, that was a question. Um, well, before I get to the whole the, the domestic terror, if we get time, on your point of Belt and Road in Eurasia, you know, I've been living, I've lived for years in, in, in Eurasia, Kazakhstan, Mongolia, I've been been to Russia. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the devil's advocate in me, the, 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 the skeptic as well, those are, you know, the whole form, former Soviet bloc, you know, Kazakhstan this, does still have this kind of authoritarian authoritarian system uh i mean living and working there it's fine if you if you work and live and and mind your own business it's it's great no, no problems but people are afraid to talk about uh, politics for example let's just say in, in kazakhstan and and you, you kind of don't want to go against uh the system and in and, and china uh as well i think you know if, if you live and work and live your own life i guess i guess it's you're, you're okay but then uh let's say you know belt and road and the eurasian union develop and and, and get bigger is there also this this threat that it could become more uh, authoritarian uh, over time? And you know we have that social credit sesame social credit system technocratic system in in China. So so for people who look at the you know the grass is greener kind of you know the whole Western technocracy uh, great reset you know the, the British Empire deep state system that we're now seeing we think grass is greener out out east. Uh, you know is is there also the danger that that Brie could evolve into a more yeah. dystopian system. Oh yeah, there's always a danger. Like with human beings, we're we're not a mathematical formula, right? Like there's no formula for success for humans. So it's really a question of of culture and uh respect for the past and respect for the future. That's the that that's the the saving grace for human beings, the animals. They're really like, you know, genetic driven, instinct driven, environment driven creatures. They're adaptable, but they don't have a sense in your like, you know, your bear species or like of like my great, great grandparent bear, or my great, great grandchild bear. And I'm going to sacrifice my great, great grandchildren after I die. That's not really there. It's not available for them in that sense. Human beings, because we have that, we, that's the foundation for all um, either, either are there cultural movements, uh, educational institutions, the creation of artistic scientific institutions that are going to either make you better or make you worse. Cause there's two, like it's politically charged. And there are some uh, cultural matrices that are consciously promoted in order to make the slaves think they're free, but actually just love their chains. Uh, the whole like, you know, much of the 20th century, unfortunately, is very much shaped artificially by social engineers who had a sense of how do you get people to really just give their identity entirely into sensual gratification and think that that's your capitalist free state. That, that, I mean, that, that's the sort of thing that grew out of Aldous Huxley's research on, in, from the Brave New World, which was not about fiction. They did it. That was, you know, LSD and the entire drug culture came out of MK Ultra as part of this entire operation to think like, how do you create a society that, again, loves their chains um, and will fight for them? <clears throat> the, uh, the thing I think that is important is that when Justin Trudeau or uh, Klaus Schwab or let's say one of the, uh, the U.S. Uh, deep state Bidenites speaks well of China, what they tend to like is what you just said. They like the part of that centralized control. They like that. Um, they, they like the social credit stuff. They like the surveillance architecture that they that could be deployed. They don't like, that's the part that they want to say is all China should be doing. That's that's what they they, they wish they had access to control their, their masses who have a little bit too much of a taste for democracy in the West. 
they don't like the part where China is committed to large-scale development, anti-degrowth, um, pro-population uh, growth. They don't like that or their respective sovereign nations. Like when China, if you look at the new re- regional uh, cooperation economic, agree, uh, regional economic cooperation. RCEP, yeah. Thank you. Partnership. Yeah, partnership. <laughs> when you look at that thing, which is like one of the biggest trade agreements in the world ever in history, uh, comprising you know, 30% of the world GDP and, and population, it's all based upon the respect for the developmental pathways of each, each participant nation. It's the same thing for Africa. And they get a lot of flack by the you know, George Soros-affiliated uh, UN human rights groups and stuff like that, or Human Rights Watch. They get a lot of, they get attacked for saying like, well, oh yeah, but you're, you're cooperating with the corrupt governments of the countries that you want to build infrastructure in bad. You're supposed to, you're supposed to do what we do and make good governance happen first. You give them a loan on the basis that they restructure their governments the way the IMF wants it. And then maybe you can offer them some development. You don't do it the other way first. You don't offer development and then maybe, maybe get rid of corruption. Um, and China's like, no, just get development, get, get the thing done. Like there's people who are dying, uh, you know, like every, every year, how many children die of hunger unnecessarily and, and famine. Right. Um, <clears throat> so there's a, there's a concept uh, of, of human self-interest organizing the macro program for the Belt and Road, which is something the empire hates and fears and wants to destroy. And that's why George Soros you know, in his uh, January 2020 Davos speech, he made uh, the point that the two greatest threats to his open society is is Donald Trump's USA and Xi Jinping's China. So these are the two greatest threats. So y- you got to see what what is it that they see as a threat? It's not the 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 authoritarian aspect of their 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 centralized governments that they don't see as necessarily a threat. What they see as a threat is the active concepts governing their large-scale macroeconomic programs and also their security architecture. Like China doesn't have a global, you know, they have one military base outside of China in, in Djibouti. They don't have global military ambitions to take over the world. The, the U.S. has whatever, 750 or I don't know how many, 800 military bases that are actually applying subversive programs for cultivating jihadi groups and neo-Nazis and other things. So it's, it's, a, it's a different concept. Now, can it be corrupted? Maybe it can't, not maybe. Everything can be corrupted. The question is, are it's it's like think of yourself like in, in periods of my life. I see economics, the, the organism of, of mankind as kind of like myself, a, a macro version of myself as an individual. And there's periods in my life where I was becoming a worse person. And I could think of periods of my life where I was happy with myself and becoming a better person. And if you think about well, what were the what were the d- common denominators amongst those periods of decay of my moral, conceptual inner constitution? It was when I was not growing anymore. I, I stopped. I, I wasn't learning. I, I, I gave into a, a, a way of being of bad habits, um, right? Bad addictions, things like that, that, that zapped my, uh, my, my vigor, my, my, my curiosity, my awe, um, my love, my ability to love uh, and empathize was, was reduced spiritually. When I was learning, um, when, I, when, I, when I started giving myself into that commitment to be in a state where I'm, I'm learning new techniques, I'm learning new painting skills, I'm learning new things and I'm trying to teach as well, I could find all of a sudden a clarity in my, my focus, a clarity in my, my ability to use my mind, to use my feelings um, and to just, you know, have judgment, right? That, that I could trust a bit more and more. 
So I think of that sort of as a society as well. If, if a society goes into stagnation, into and there's so many ways to stagnate, to stop striving for the for something better for the people. Um, yeah, you can be corrupted. You're more inclined to be subverted from within. The empire has all sorts of ways to identify and to encourage those sorts of of attributes to one of their victim target societies, um, and and that allows that society to to actually self destruct increasingly. Um, that's what happened to the United States after the Civil War, right? When um, the, the British tried on many occasions during the, the 19th century to destroy the USA from militarily from the War of 1812. The Civil War was again entire. I mean, the British aspect, the City of London financiers, the British military were, were providing warships to the Confederate South. They were providing weapons, money, all sorts of things. They were providing assassination um, cover. Um, terrorist cover from Canada, from where they provided the Confederate secret se secret headquarters, all of their uh, Montreal and Toronto. They, they gave them full access to their intelligence agencies in Canada so that they could run operations against Lincoln from the north. And Lincoln still persevered because he understood the nature of the game very well, even though he died. And his assassin was deployed to kill him from Montreal, John Wilkes Booth. Um, and they found a, a banknote <clears throat> from the, the head of the Bank of Ontario, uh, Henry Starnes, um, in his room. Um, directly as payment for the the, the deed. So um, they, when the British couldn't any longer, when they realized that they couldn't physically destroy their targets militarily in the old-fashioned way, their focus became more how do we corrupt it and subvert it from within. Could they do that with China? Maybe they could do that with, maybe with Russia. Could, they could do it with anybody as long as these countries give up on their future. Now, I would just add one more thing to that. When China originally opened up, in 19, I mean, it began sort of, I guess you could say, with Kissinger opening things, right? In, in 1972, I believe, under Nixon. Am I right? Somewhere in the 70s. I don't know the year. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at the time under Mao, <clears throat> what, what the British wanted at the time, because what was happening, it, the, they were rewiring the system of the world so that the former industrial nations would, be, would now, under the new, the new set of uh, liberalized economic um, ethics, they would be out. They would outsource their former industrial and manufacturing bases to poor countries, and the poor countries would do cheap labor for Western consumer markets, and that became what was known as the post-industrial society. Now, Henry Kissinger was a big player in making that happen by floating the U.S. dollar from the floating from the fixed exchange rate, the gold reserve, and floating it to the world markets. That was a big re way way to get that pivot into the new paradigm. Um, but in his world, he wanted the world to be forever divided by a productive class of poor people who would be too poor to consume what they produce and cheap goods being sent into uh, former productive zones, which would just be consumer and would never be able to produce what they used to produce for themselves. So it would be like an addiction of cheap labor always. And he wanted the world forever divided under this type of strict uh, haves and have nots duality. That was a, a nice way to keep balance in the, in his mind and, and his controllers because he, he represented a higher, I mean, it's a whole other discussion. So <clears throat> he wanted what we saw with the Cultural Revolution. Like, so Mao was sort of torn between, since 1949, he was sort of torn between two opposing factions within China. You had the Zhuenlai faction, which represented a, a sort of a much more pro-industrial, pro-development orientation. Zhuenlai was one of the architects of the, uh, the Bandung Conference with uh, Jawaharlal Nehru in 1955. Um, which set up the, the five principles of peaceful coexistence. 
right? It was sort of a, a recapitulation of the Westphalian principles of the benefit of the other, of forgiveness, of mutual development, of harmony of nations. Um, he was, he, he, was, he in, in so many more ways embodied the spirit of Sun Yat-sen, the first president of China, um, in his overall thinking and strategizing. Now, his enemies were known as the Gang of Four. The Gang of Four and he were always battling it out. One of Sh uh, Xu Lai's prodigies was a, a young guy named uh, Deng Xiaoping. So you had these two factions, and at different times, Mao would vacillate from one to the other. You know, what, you know he'd be influenced by one, and at a certain point, uh, you know, he, he went along with the, the Gang of Four, and that became the Cultural Revolution, which was just a total mess. It was a disaster, which many Chinese even today are, are still suffering from uh, as scar. <clears throat> now, she, Kissinger, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who also went to China, they love that part of the Gang of Four culture revolution as being like this permanent state of equilibrium. They, and, and when they, they said, okay, we'll shake hands and you're going to start doing the production, um, Mao died. The Gang of Four, there was a coup. So Xu Enlai died, Mao died, same year. But immediately, Deng Xiaoping took the helm and the Gang of Four were all put in prison. And he gave people the right to finally criticize Mao. And he basically said to the people, he is no longer, we cannot treat Mao as a superhuman, as a god. He's a human and, and he made mistakes and you're allowed to criticize that. Um, that was a big sort of spiritual healing. It wasn't the full blown package, but it was still like a good step. And, and in, in, Xi, in Deng Xiaoping's mind, he, he had a much more long view of development than, Xi, than Kissinger did. And he understood that, okay, we're gonna have to take China from a third world country of total poverty and leapfrog by by copying Western technologies as much as we possibly can so that we can leapfrog what the US did in 300 years. We got to do it in like a generation or two. And he laid out a whole program to make that happen. And now, as we see, because he was thinking, and it's part of the Chinese matrix, they just tend to think on much longer waves of history, even longer than Kissinger. And Kissinger thinks in very long waves of history. He thinks about, you know, the Peace of Westphalia of 1646 uh, or 49. 48, think I think. 48, yeah. He thinks of that in a way which is like an active thing, an organizing thing in, in his strategizing. People think, wow, that's incredible. You're you're so brilliant as a geostrategist. The Chinese are fucking thinking about thousands of years ago as well, you know, like they're, and thousands of years in the future. Um, so a lot of the Western oligarchy didn't understand that. And they hated the fact that the, the Gang of Four agenda was no longer the, the hegemonic approach. Um, so again, I, I think if you're always focusing upon New, new discoveries, elevating the conditions of, of human beings through economic development and scientific and technological progress. If that's always your commitment to go beyond the horizons of knowledge and then and then leap into the into the unknown and then transmit that into your system that allows you to sustain more people at a higher quality of life, your political economic system is going to reciprocally change for the better or for the worse with the betterment or the worseness of your of your culture. So I think that all of society is sort of a, a motion towards better or worseness. It's not, it's not like there's China as it is now and always will be, or the West as it is now and always will be. It's always a flux, like language. Mm, like a living, living thing. Um, yeah. Uh, I guess last question in the interest of, of time, since, since this is where we are at in the yeah. conversation. Um, so then do you think Bretton Woods will go to war with Belt and Road, basically. You know, Bretton Woods system is dying. It's got this great reset now. Um, you think there's going to be, you know, a World War III uh, scenario? It's possible. I mean, um, <clears throat> I, I, I think that, um, like, what was his name? Uh, 
the French finance minister last year made the point that um, if we don't if we don't get rid of if we if we don't save the Bretton Woods, then China's uh, renminbi will be the basis for the new world order. And he said that as a warning. That's unacceptable. Uh, we can't allow that. Um, right now, I I always like the polemic that. If you go back the way I did at the beginning of this conversation to history and you look at the original basis of the Bretton Woods organization originally with the UN in 1944 to 45 and 46, before the Cold War, but that period of dense fighting over what it was going to be. Um, the IMF, the World Bank were originally, I mean, these are Bretton Woods institutions. The fixed exchange rate system was part of that fabric that was designed by Henry Dexter White, Roosevelt's anti-imperial ally. It was These were all designed to ensure that you would have stability of uh, the system that you would not have speculation on poor nations credit. So that was what the fixed exchange rate is all about. If you could, you could kind of know what the variability of the prices of, a, of the value of a local currency were um, into the future so that you could plan long-term. You didn't want to just have people thinking about the next like quarter. Um, those, those institutions were all originally designed to be the expression of the full spectrum creation of economies around the world that could all stand on their own two feet. So every individual nation would have the access to the new deal type of programs of the Tennessee Valley authority, the electrification projects um, of the U S experience, the Hoover dam projects, like all of these things would be made available and technology transfers were very much clearly on the table as we saw with, with Mexico, uh, with uh, Brazil, with Argentina uh, and their delegations at the Bre Bretton Woods system, uh, Bre Bretton Woods conference which were all adopted and endorsed by Harry Dexter White and Roosevelt. Uh, Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, who represented the Bank of England and the British Empire, were completely in opposition to the idea, all of those ideas. They wanted a one-world currency or an ex a, a basis of one-world one currency called the Bancor, run by the Bank of England. They wanted no technology transfer, no industrial development for poor countries. Basically, they wanted the U.S. to serve and protect the new British Empire, which is, and it ended up being that's sort of what happened with a bit of a sleight of hand. Um, now I, I think an irony is that the, the actual heir to the Bretton Woods traditions is the Belt and Road, the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, the Chinese Export Import Banks, like that entire economic architecture is behaving the way that Roosevelt and Harry Dexter White intended it originally to be. That's, you know, conditionality free long-term loans for real development for poor countries. They're, they're actually training generations of engineers in Africa and Kenya and Nigeria, we see it. I mean, I, I, I follow this. Um, they're doing things that the IMF and World Bank never permitted, no development of the minds of people that you're, you're gonna go and exploit, never. So um, I think that if the US, if the West as a whole is going to be able to uh, find its soul back, recognizing that those are the traditions that are activated and that are in its own benefit, that they're welcome to join you know, whether it's space exploration as well, asteroid defense, which China and Russia's uh, space programs are very concerned with, as are Japan, as are India. Um, they're talking seriously about as and asteroid defense. It's one of these outside the box concepts that changes our idea of geopolitics, economics, value, what can and cannot be, um, new discoveries. All, there are things that are outside of the closed system that we're in, which offer conceptual pathways to solving problems which you don't have if you're just locked, locking your mind within the game plan, the game masters have it all set up. You're fucked. Sorry for the language, but you, you can't win. Um, so you, you have to think on those higher outside the system terms. Um, and then you can avoid nuclear war. 
But if you look at the 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 better, to, you know, I, we'd rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. Uh, dark age ideologues who are uh, they have a lot of influence and power uh, right now in the West. They're willing to risk launching a nuclear war that they don't mind the risk of it abolishing and destroying them too. There's kind of, I think, a suicidal impulse in their own uh, organizational structure. Um, so <clears throat> that's something, again, people, it's not a, this is not fiction. This is not a Hollywood movie. This is, we're living in history right now. Yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, studying history, uh, people don't understand the sinister and evil nature of some of these people in power. And, you know, we've seen during the Korean War, we've had, uh, who was it, General, uh, General MacArthur, who wanted to nuke uh, China. Uh, and then we've had during the Cuban Missile Crisis that, you know, Pentagon Joint Chiefs who were ready to nuke <laughs> Russia. And so throughout history, we, we have this group of people that are just, as you said, just willing I guess to watch the world burn. And so that's why I, I, I always feel like there's this propensity that things will, will go there. They definitely can go there. And as you said, we don't know what's going to happen, but um, I think we'll le leave it there for now. And hopefully you'll join us in, in the future. You're, so, you're a guest that, you know, you've got all those books behind you. You've got the, this, this history of, of writing your articles that really go deep. You've got so many sources, you're, you're well-read. And so we, we could talk uh, for hours. And so we'll leave it there for now. Your website is canadianpatriot.org. You've got a, a great YouTube ch channel that I just discovered that's got a lot of material and interviews there. Uh, is there any other website or project, project that we should uh, know about? Yeah, um, and thank you for, for advertising those. Um, I, uh, I recommend also people have a look at a, the nonprofit organization that I, uh, I've, I created uh, last year with my wife, Cynthia, who's also a writer at Strategic Culture and uh, the Canadian Patriot. Um, it's risingtidefoundation.net. And um, there's a lot of videos, weekly lectures that we do. People, if they write in, they can um, receive an invitation to our, our weekly Zoom meetings. Um, and uh, yeah, th there's just a lot of educational material, and it's a little bit more focused upon culture, science, education. Um, the Canadian Patriot is a little bit more hard-hitting, controversial stuff. Uh, they both go together, though. They, 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 they work nicely as, a, as an ensemble. And also, uh, I recently set up a Substack. So if people want to subscribe to the Substack or just make a donation, then that's, that's also there on the sites. All right. Um, I read just about every one of uh, the articles you put out on uh, strategic culture. So I do recommend people bookmark uh, your sites. I'll, I'll include the links. And so thanks again for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Thanks for having me on. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast and interview. I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com and you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming. You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.